0: One Hope Church. It's not what I'm going to preach on this morning, but I wanted to read uh, from Galatians three. It says, starting in verse 23, it says, Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray together. Lord, as as Derek just prayed, this week has been pretty rough. Many times when we gather together, we, we pray a prayer of thanksgiving, thanking you that we can meet in peace and that we don't have to worry about someone coming in and persecuting us. But just a few miles up the road, that's exactly what happened. So Lord, we, maybe we should change our prayer. We thank you for the peace that we have, but we also ask for your protection every time we gather. And whether someone is persecuted for the color of their skin or for the faith that they proclaim, Lord. We pray that your protection would be there. There's no room in the church or in your kingdom for any hate. So, Lord, we pray for your peace. We pray for your comfort for the the church and the community that's grieving now. Lord, I know closer to home we've had some things in in our church family and those close to us that are causing us pain and hurt this morning. We pray for your comfort there. We know that Father's Day is not an easy day for a lot of people, so we pray for your peace and your comfort in that. And as we look in your word, help us to see from you. Help us to understand who you are and how you want us to relate to one another. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 3. If you want to go ahead and turn there. And I'll refer a couple of times to Ephesians chapter 5, but we're going to be preaching through 1 Peter 3. And part of me doesn't even want to preach this sermon after some of the things that have had uh, happened this week, but um, God's Word can teach us and uh, speak to us no matter what our circumstances are. So uh, we're going to continue looking through first Peter as we've been doing this summer. The world has changed and obviously that's, I think that's obvious the world has changed a lot, but the way I want to talk about this morning is in regard to men and women and our, our roles that, that we fulfill in society. And obviously these are going to be broad generalizations because there are exceptions to every rule when it comes to, what, how things typically are, but I, I think you'll see that some of these things are really are broad and that we should have some understanding uh, and some appreciation just through our lives of how some of these things are true. <coughs> men are born with natural energies and dispositions that, lead, that led them for ages to be the hunters and defenders and the leaders in their communities, uh, and men have fulfilled these roles for thousands of years. And in a more modern sense, men have taken on the role as breadwinners. That's how we've been we've called them for the past few centuries. That's not to say that women and children didn't work, because obviously women have children have always worked in our societies, but it's been viewed as that it's the man's responsibility to be the, the breadwinner for their family. But this has had some tragic side effects. Uh, it's led to wage inequality, educational restrictions, lack of voting <laughs> rights, uh, the proverbial glass ceiling that we refer to a lot, and just a general view of sexism uh, among uh, people, but the past hundred years have brought some significant changes uh, in this regard. Uh, just something that 's close to home for us UGA just over a hundred years was hundred years ago was one hundred percent male today there are five thousand more female students than there are male students, and that 's pretty common across the board at universities that, that women outnumber men at these at universities. Uh, back in 1920, not even 100 years ago, women in this country were secured the right to vote with the 19th Amendment. Back during World War II, which ran from 1939 to 1945, many women had to go into the workforce as the men left to fight the war. And, uh, and I don't think we can underestimate the role or the effect that having access to safe and effective birth control has had on the workforce. That came about in the 60s and 70s. It's had a a huge effect that I don't think we always appreciate. At the end of World War II, one-third of women were in the workforce. Today, 57% of women are in the workforce. More recently, in the recession that started around 2008 and continued on, men were hit much worse with job losses than women were. They were disproportionately affected. And men have... have lagged in the recovery. Women have been able to get jobs easier and faster than men have in the recovery. And a lot of men are finding that the skills that they had, that they could have a a good job with before all of this happened, no longer matches the jobs that are available. A lot of them, maybe like me, when the recession hit and my job got cut back, I went to grad school, tried to improve my skills a little bit. Um, And this effect is not limited to the workforce. Um, It has an effect on family. While... There's a big movement is going on in our country right now to redefine marriage. The larger trend has been a cultural retreat from marriage. And what I mean by that is that there's been, a, also has been called a decline in fatherhood, which has led to a larger male identity crisis. And this is not me just making up stuff. This is what social scientists are, are studying and looking at. Um, the divorce rates are dropping, which, well, hey, that's a good thing. But the fact is that the marriage rates are dropping and that people are waiting much later to get married. In the 1960s, the average age for a first marriage was 20 for a woman and 22 for a man. Nowadays, the average age for a woman's first marriage is 27, and for the man it's 29. So a seven to nine year swing there on uh, how much later people are getting married. And the fact is, is that women don't need a husband for financial stability. They can provide for themselves. And our society's standards for what's acceptable sexually, as far as living together and having children outside of marriage, those have changed dramatically over the past several decades. And so there's less pressure as a society for people to get married. And when you have that less pressure of society to get married or maybe even to grow up for for some, it promotes this idea of an extended adolescence, which is also something that social scientists have been studying. Some of them don't even say adulthood begins until 25 so that's a big change from 18, which is what we've traditionally viewed, and it was much younger years ago. So when you have all these changes, and, I, and when I talk about extended adolescence, your, your thought may be the guy in his parents' basements playing video games all day long, but it applies to women as well. I, I've seen women in their 30s who are acting like they're still in college. So there's, there's, it runs the whole gamut for male and female there. And... The effects also extend to the church. And I could go on for days about this, but I'm going to keep it to this point. On average, in America, there are more women than men in churches. And in more liberal churches, that spread is much greater. And when I talk about liberal churches or mainline churches, these would be the liberal side of Baptist, Episcopal, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist. Ones You could think of them as ones that have... uh, uh, allowed women to be pastors and ministers and priests would be one way to look uh, to identify those churches. And you're like, well, okay, we, that would make sense that if there's more women there, there would be women in leadership. Um, but the effects, there's an effect to that. Uh, there was a study that came out just a few weeks ago from a Pew looking at Christianity in America, and it showed that mainline denominations are on the decline while evangelical churches are holding steady. The headlines were all, Christianity is fading in America, but it's primarily certain types of Christianity. Um, the evangelicals, the ones that I think we would probably more identify with, are holding steady as far as the population goes. So I, s- I say all this to point out a larger trend in our society, that the traits and characteristics that have been, that are uh, identified with men that were formally required by life and even praised, are now dismissed and denigrated. And these characteristics are like the urge for competition, risk-taking, challenge, independence, physicality, and, and even sexuality to a degree. Uh, you, those of you who have children will know that dads play with their kids different than moms do. And sometimes it freaks the moms out the way that dads play with the kids. I think that's just one, indi- just one common indicator of the differences between men and women. And one social theory says that in times of relative peace, societies trend toward androgyny, less difference between men and women. And I think that would probably describe our society now, is that there are far fewer differences between men and women now than there have been in the past. Men were built and designed to live in the proverbial Siberia, where everything is hard. But now we're in a world that's basically Tahiti. We don't really have to work that hard for our food. We're not really in fear when we travel. Uh, All these chances that men typically had to be men are not there as much. And that kind of draws us into other things that we would want to uh, participate in to have that. So it leaves many men feeling that there's not a place for them in society. So... All of that said, as a backdrop, I I hope that you see that in our society and that you have some identification with that. But with men and women more alike than ever, how do we interpret a passage like 1 Peter 3? Well, let's read it first. So 1 Peter 3, I'm going to start at verse 1. We'll do this in sections. Remember last week, Marcus talked about being submissive to human authorities such as government, and uh, maybe our workplace. Remember, this is a continuation of that thought. He says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. So let's stop there for a second. This, this encouragement or this instruction to For wives to be submissive, it's echoed in other places in Scripture. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians 5, Titus chapter 2. And this is continuing those thoughts that we looked at last week of how we honor authority in our lives. So this is, he he talks about uh, honoring authority of government, these different roles. And now he's moving into the, the family relations. And our roles in the home are often compared to roles in the church. And there are parallels here. And you remember when we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there were some particular things that went through there that we had to wrestle with a bit to figure out, you know, exactly how that applies to us. And you see some of the same things in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But I think it's been really encouraging to me when I've had discussions with some of the young women in our church who can really articulate this and seem to understand it. But I think we also have a misconception that it's like, well, if I have a godly husband, then that's... I can be submissive to them, but what if he's not godly, then all bets are off? Well, that's not what Peter's teaching here. He says, because he's talking about that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. So even if your husband is not a believer, this is still a requirement. So, now... Understand, this is not an endorsement of marrying a non-believer. Scripture is pretty clear on that. We should not be unequally yoked. But it, was, it can be very common that one person would become a believer and the other would not. So that's what uh, Peter is instructing here for. And we see the same thing. Paul gives the same types of instructions. And then he says, without a word. So even if they're disobedient to the word, maybe the, the word that they've heard or been preached to them, that they could be one without a word. That means that they're one by watching the, the pious living of their wife rather than having the wife guilt them into coming to church or doing certain things or, um, or nagging them about things, that her life could be such an example that it would be a testimony to this non-believing husband. But, and here's an import, another important thing that we see in verse 1. It talks about your own husband. It doesn't mean that women are, have to be submissive to all men. She has one husband. And that's where the authority lies. And, you know, we talked about in 1 Corinthians 14, you know, how it says that that women should ask their husbands at home if they have questions. And that actually serves as a protection for women from improper spiritual leadership. So that they're always going to their husband for that leadership rather than uh, to others. Now, that doesn't diminish the role of leadership within the church of elders. but But for a woman, it should primarily be from her husband. As we continue on to uh, chapter, or verse 2, we really see the power of respect here. And uh, I'm going to look over in Galatians chapter 5. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 5. And in verse 33, it has a similar sentiment. It's a, this passage is very similar to this one. It has a lot of the same content. But in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33... It says, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So I really think that these those two verses together really play at some of the strongest needs that men and women have in their marriage relationship. It's incredibly important for a wife to be faithful to her husband and to respect her husband. For the man... For the husband, that's extremely important because few things will hurt him more than if his wife is unfaithful to him or doesn't respect him. And for women, I think we would say that that love that her husband has for her is probably the highest importance because she will forgive a lot if she knows that her husband loves her. She she may not forgive everything. There are still lines that shouldn't be crossed. But I think generally... A woman, a wife will love her, will uh, love her, or respect her husband if, he knows, if she knows that he loves her. And then we continue on uh, to verse 3, uh, which is also very similar to 1 Timothy uh, chapter, two, uh, chapter 2. And he talks about the adornment and the wearing of jewelry and dresses. And, and I, I like to think of adornment as anything that, uh, that a woman would put on to make herself more beautiful or more attractive. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but what we and we when he talks about wearing, you know, whether it's braiding of hair or, or maybe wearing something on the head, um, you know, whether you know, I don't think many of us walk around wearing tiaras or anything like that. But uh, as far as you know, the way we, that that women do their hair, or even um, in some churches that that practice uh, head covering, that can even be a point where people use that to draw attention to themselves uh, by taking things really further than what Scripture instructs us to. And I think for us, we've so objectified women in our culture that we see this and we immediately think of sexuality. That's, I think that's immediately what a lot of us think. But I don't really think that's the primary thing that it's referring to. I think it's primarily referring to vanity and materialism, which are matters of the heart. Much more than, than, someone trying to lead, than a, a woman trying to lead somebody astray uh, sexually by what they wear. Through verse 4, we see this idea of what's on. It says, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. This idea of the hidden inside. Paul often talks about the difference between what's going on outside of him compared to what's going on in his heart. You know, that everything on the outside may be crazy, but in his heart he's content. And we see Jesus also talks about what people do publicly versus what they do privately or in secret. And he condemned the Pharisees because they did everything on the public, publicly, outside, but inside they were dead. And that we're supposed to worry about the inside before we worry about the outside. And I think this follows in that same line, that we're supposed to be the imperishable things versus what we may do to be attractive or beautiful here on earth. And First Timothy also adds the idea of good works, that you should adorn yourself with good works. And he says, what is precious, meaning what something that has a great price or is highly valued. I think most of us have probably heard from uh, Proverbs chapter 31, the description of an excellent wife. uh, Verse 30 there, Charm is deceitful when beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Everything has to be secondary to that. Everything has to be secondary to that. Verse 6, talking about Abraham and Sarah, refers back to Genesis 18, and uh, obviously the great step of faith that Abraham had to take Sarah had to take a similar step to follow her husband through all these different things to to believe that what God had promised was actually going to happen. But the fear that he talks about here uh, is, is, I think, really speaks to the tough situations that life brings us and the cultural opposition. If you're a person who tries to have a biblical marriage and you're public about that, it will ruffle feathers with your friends. It's like, what do you mean, you know, that you're submissive to your husband? What, you know, it's like, what does that even look like? It, it flies in the face of our culture. And we have to be bold enough to say, no, this is the type of life that we're living. This is what God has called us to. But also that, that in the times that we're called to be submissive, we have to be submissive out of our conscience, not out of fear of what might happen to us. If the only reason you obey the law is so you don't go to jail, you're kind of missing the point. Um, so we should be motivated out of conscience and not out of fear of what other people might say or even how a spouse might react to this. But also don't misunderstand this as a command to stay in an abusive or an adulterous relationship. Some people will use this verse to make that claim, to say, well, if your husband goes crazy, you, know, you still just have to stay there and take it. I think that completely flies in the face of Scripture. You're not commanded to leave an adulterous spouse, but you're also command, not commanded to stay. So there has to be a lot of wisdom there, but we have to, uh, don't let people misuse this verse. Uh, it's the same as when we are submissive to government authority. We don't use that submission to sin. So if the government tells us to do something that is clearly against the God's law, we don't say, well, I've got to be submissive to the government, so I'm going to do it. No, that's not what, this verse is teaching. That is when the obligation to submit ends. Is when it leads us to sin. So let's continue to verse 7. It says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. How many of you, when you read that, you went, ugh? That kind of hurt a little bit. Does it sound a bit condescending, just the way the words come out? It's like, what do you mean understanding and weaker? Um, it, it comes off that way, but I don't think that's what, how it was intended at all. Uh, the understanding that he talks about is with a knowledge of the way that God has designed us. Knowing that God has designed us different will help us understand how to interact with one another. And it also means that that husbands, in relation to their wives... Um, should not operate out of what they want or just their own lust or passions. They have to operate out of knowledge of the way that God has made us. And when it says weaker, uh, some of your translations may be say uh, the weaker vessel, which is a more literal translation. Um, the fact is, is that we're all vessels for God. You know, 2 Corinthians 4-7 uh, says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels and jars of clay to show that this power is from God and not from us. We're all vessels. So some of us are going to be weaker and some are uh, stronger. But we want to make sure that th- we understand this is pr- pointing to physical weakness, uh, not an intellectual weakness or a moral weakness uh, among women. Um, as I said, there are exceptions to that rule. Um, working out at Ramsey, there are women there who are far stronger than I am. So, um, and I just go, wow. So, um, so obviously there are exceptions. We're talking about generalizations here. And then it says, And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And in the passage I read earlier from Galatians, we're heirs. As believers, we are all heirs. And we have to show each other respect from that because God honors us by making us heirs. So how dare we not honor one another? A lack of honor for fellow believers, especially our spouses, can hinder our prayer life. the The role that fathers and husbands have is huge, and our society has a lot in a lot of ways diminished that. Uh, the default is that if a parent if parents divorce, the default is that they go with the mother. Um, it's there. There are a lot of. Uh, I, I was reading some articles that talked about how. A lot of times whenever there's some type of counseling or something like that that involves the children, the dads are not even involved. A lot of times not even invited. So in a lot of ways, our society has pushed out uh, husbands and fathers, but the impact a father has on their family is huge. One statistic, and I quoted this last year at one point, it says, but if a father is the first person in a family to become a believer there's over a 90% chance that the rest of the family will become a believer, become believers. And the numbers for other members of the family are not even close. Fathers have that big a role in their families, even if they're not exercising that role, if they're not active in that role, it's the way God has designed our families to work. Whether you like it or not, it's going to happen. Whether you're pursuing it or not, it's the impact that they're going to have. I'm gonna jump back over to Ephesians chapter five again and read verse twenty-five. Ephesians five twenty-five says, Husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The thing is, our marriages preach a gospel message. When they see a husband and a wife who love each other in a godly way, that points to Jesus. That points to the gospel if we don't have that frame of reference of how uh, a husband loves a wife and how that's compared to Christ and the church, it it makes it hard for us to understand that. And that's why it's important that we have a biblical view of marriage, because it preaches a gospel message. So with all this, back to my question, how do we interpret this passage in light of all the changes that have happened in our society, uh, particularly over the past hundred years or so? Equality is absolutely a biblical principle. And believers have rightly sought to correct the injustices of sexism, discrimination, and other forms of gender inequality. But in our zeal to correct the wrongs of history and the present day, we can't forget that God made these male-female distinctions in order for us to complement each other and fulfill different roles in society. These distinctions come with certain responsibilities and they're most apparent and the most difficult in the home and in the church. This idea of them complementing each other, which is made up of equality and distinction, that we are equal but different, is the biblical model for marriage. That's why we can't accept a hierarchical view that says that men are better than women. They're, they're not equal. But we also can't accept an egalitarian view that says we are the, that we are equal and the same. Obviously, we're different. It's it's obvious on the outward appearance, but even in Scripture it teaches us that that we're different, and we actually have a little bit of a description of this in the Foundations book. If you haven't uh, looked at that, that goes into a little more detail. So when we but when we look at, it, at submission, I, th- I think it's helpful to also look to Jesus because there's parallels here between Jesus submitting to the Father. Matthew twenty six. Jesus before Jesus is tried and crucified, he says, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours. In John 6, 38, Jesus says, I have not come to do the will of, do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in 1 Corinthians 11, where they're talking about these differences between males and females, he says uh, that God is the head of Christ in the same way that he says that man is the head of woman. So Jesus, G- so we see that there's an equality. We, if, you've, if we've talked any about the Trinity, you understand that there's an equality between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there's also distinctions between the three of them. As one of the hardest things to understand about the Christian faith is the idea of Trinity. But it's the same idea of submission, that though they are equal, that the Son submits himself to the Father. And even as, as Marcus talked about last week, Jesus submitted himself to human authority out of obedience to his Father. So equality and submission are both key to our understanding of the Trinity, and that that applies to our marriages as well. Now, while we're in this ballpark, let me give you a little something extra, uh, which may be dangerous. Um, let me caution you, and, and, and this is, again, maybe tar- targeted more to, to women than men. Um, but let me caution you about saying that you're dating Jesus or, or Jesus is my husband or even the language that we use of falling in love with Jesus. Um, be really careful with that. And for a few reasons. One, it's not really biblical. Um, there are multiple words in the Bible that are translated as love. We say we love our car and we love our wife. Um, obviously, those are two different types of love. Um, and in these other languages, those distinctions are clear, but in English, not so much. You know, you know, I, I get a new car when it wears out, but I'm married to my wife for the rest of my life. So the level of love there is different. If I buy a car that I don't like, um, eventually it will go away and I'll get a new one. Um, same that should not be true of our, our spouse's. Um, but the word describing romantic love, which is eros, is never used of Jesus. It's actually nowhere in the New Testament. So when we have, and I, I'm a music guy and I help put together our song book, but when we have songs that use this overly romantic language of God, where sometimes you question, is he talking about God or his girlfriend? Um, that's really hard. And guys, that just, we're like, ugh. You know, I don't want to talk about sweet embraces with Jesus or anything like that. So, But that can be very attractive for people who are more tied to this this idea of romance. And we say, well, but you know, doesn't the Bible say that Jesus is the bridegroom and and all that? Well, it says he's the bridegroom of the church, not of you individually. The church as a whole is the bride of Christ. And, And to be honest, as a guy, as a regular guy, it's hard to compete with Jesus for the affections of your wife or girlfriend. You know, how, what do you do when you want to ask a girl out and she says, well, I'm dating Jesus, and it's like, well, I'm done, you know. And, and it happens, you know, because you just can't compete, you know. There's, there's no way to compete. Um, and, and, and I've even seen it where if, let's say, a woman has a, uh, a husband that's a non-believer or is not uh, doing the things that a, a good husband should do, they'll say, well, Jesus is my husband. You know, because he's the perfect husband. It's like, well, yeah, if he was a husband, he would be perfect at it. But that's not the relationship that uh, we've been taught to have with Jesus. So let's wrap this up, starting at verse 8, as he addresses all believers. So if there hasn't been something for you before now, there will be here. It says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. "...not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are, to, are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer." but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So this is the summary statement for all these different groups that he's talked about dealing with authority and submission. And he says we're to be harmonious. We're to be like-minded as believers. doesn't mean that we agree on everything, but that we have the same purpose in mind. We're sympathetic. We're compassionate to one another. You know, we don't tell people we'll get over it. You know, that we understand the hurts that others deal with. That we're brotherly which is not exclusive to Mel, it's the idea of of a brethren, brothers and sisters together. We're to be kind-hearted, tender-hearted toward each other. And we're to be humble in spirit because there's no room for pride. And he talks about how we're to interact with people who do evil to us. Uh, uh, In Matthew 5, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not uh, resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And we see similar statements from Paul in Romans 12 and 1 Thessalonians 5. If we react in an evil way toward those who do evil to us, we're no different. There's a higher call for us as believers. And then he has this quote from Psalm 34. And he talks about how... uh, that if, if you desire life to love and to see good days, you must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. James 3 has that great passage about controlling the tongue. And it says, uh, how great a forest is set on fire by such a small spark. Talking about the tongue is a fire. We can do so much damage with careless words. And that's in any relationship but especially in your marriage relationships, especially within the church. And then verse 11, it says to seek peace and pursue it. And you're like, well, what's the difference between seeking peace and pursue it? I think all of us, it's kind of like the, when we, have, we see beauty pageants and the question, what do you want for the world? Well, world peace. Well, obviously we all want there to be peace in the world. But are you pursuing it? Are you doing things to bring that about as much as you are able? As we saw these events this past week in Charleston, you're just like, man, that's, that's horrible. And, you know, but are we doing things in our own lives to make sure that that doesn't happen here? It doesn't happen in our community. Are we working to make our community different? So you can't just say, hey, that'd be great if things were different. We have to pursue it. You have to go after it. You have to work for it. And then verse 12, it says, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And to me, this refers back to verse 7, when it speaks of uh, so that your prayers will not be hindered. We, We don't want anything to interfere with our communication with God. And if being disobedient to any of this is a normal part of our lives, it will impact our relationship with God. We will have a hard time hearing from Him. And it says that His ears are turned to those who are righteous. So make sure that we have nothing that would hinder our prayers. And as we go into this open time where we, uh, where we meet to Jesus, where we pray, where we sing, where we read Scripture... The first thing that we should do is make sure that there's nothing in our life that hinders our prayers. Really, we should do that before we ever gather together. It should be a regular part of our lives when we wake up in the morning and when we go to sleep at night, that we are regularly making sure that there is nothing between us. That's part of why having the bread and cup here every week is so important is because it causes us to keep short accounts with God. There should be short accounts in our marriage. You know, it says... Don't go to bed in anger, you know. And sometimes that's hard when you're sharing a bed with the person you're angry at. Um, so maybe you sleep on the couch that night. Um, but so you, we have to keep these short accounts. You can't let these things build up. You have to make things right as soon as you know that there's something wrong. So as we go into this open time, I pray that we would do that, um, that we'll be able to hear from God uh, during this time. So let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty that is marriage. Lord, we thank you for that it brings us so much joy, uh, that it's the beginning of a family. Um, Lord, all the things that bring us so much joy through our families. Lord, we know that there's a lot of uh, brokenness and hurt in this area too. We're not ignorant of that. We can't change the past. Lord, if, but if we're at fault, Lord, we seek your forgiveness. Lord, we ask for your comfort to heal the hurts that we've gone through. Lord, we ask that in everything that as we pursue this, that we'd be seeing that in relation to you we would be righteous, that we'd be at peace with all men as much as it depends on us. Lord, as we, as we come to this open time, as we come to the table, forgive us of all the ways that we failed. Help us to be like-minded and compassionate and kind-hearted toward each other, to remove any pride that's in our hearts. Lord, we pray for peace. Lord, we ask that You would push us to do what it takes to see peace in our communities. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus.